0: church family? Good to see all of you today. I want to give a special welcome to uh, everyone who's joining us online and an even more special welcome to anyone who might be a guest with us today. We always love welcoming guests into our services. If you've got a Bible, let me hear your pages turning to the Old Testament book of Esther. Uh, you can find chapter two uh, there and just hold that ready for a few minutes. But before we turn our attention to all of that, I've got a couple things I need to talk to you about. First of all, when you came in, if you've been around for any length of time, you notice that the tip jars are out. That's what I called them the very first time I ever put them out, the tip jars, because they remind me of those jars on the counter at the restaurant, you know, when you pick up your food and you drop in a little tip. Well, the reason why they're out is because we want to give everyone the opportunity to participate in hurricane relief right now. I'm sure you've been watching and have just been uh, horrified by the images that you've seen from Southwest Florida. I uh, had long phone conversations this last week with uh, Matt Summers, who's the pastor at First Christian Church in Fort Myers, Florida, and Rusty Russell, who's the pastor at New Day Christian Church in Port Charlotte, Florida, and both of them told me some pretty incredible stories, and they said, really, honestly, regardless of what you see on the news, if you are here in person, it is just absolutely overwhelming. Pictures can't even capture the depth of the destruction and the displacement and on and on and on. So Mount Pleasant Christian Church has a partnership for many, many years with a ministry called IDES, International Disaster Emergency Services. They're located up in Noblesville, Indiana. We've worked with them for disaster relief before and all the monies that we receive from uh, you for hurricane relief are gonna go directly to them. They're actually on the ground in Port Charlotte, Florida right now helping people in need. And so when the service is over uh, today, then I would just love you to come down and put in whatever you have or whatever you might be willing to put into the tip jar. I never ask you to do anything that I'm not willing to do. I put all the money in my wallet in last night, okay? And if you don't believe me, it's on video. Go ahead and check it out. (laughs) Anyway, so, uh, and I I didn't have time to go to the bank and get any more money. So anyway, um, I want to encourage you to do that. Here's the second thing. You probably, if you came through the commons, you noticed that we have a really unusual setup in the commons today with tables and letters. Our dear brother, Dr. Ajay Law, in India and his brother, David Law, who leads Mid-India Christian Church, Ajay and Indu of course founded Central India Christian Mission over 25 years ago. Uh, They are under some incredibly serious persecution at the moment, so so much so that recently, both Ajay and David had to go into hiding. The government has taken their cell phones and their passports. Uh, There is a group of people in the Central India area who are trying to do everything they can to discredit them and uh, the ministry that they've been involved in for so long. Recently, uh, CICM, Dr. Ajay Law, and uh, Mission Hospital that we, honestly, we funded the majority of building um, re- received a lot of recognition and some local awards for their humanitarian efforts during COVID. This inflamed people who are enemies of the mission, and they have just made it their goal to try to destroy them through lies and disinformation. And it's a very, very serious situation, very, very serious and so, I, I have been in contact with them, and I have been in contact with the US Office of CICM, and they have asked, this this comes all the way from India, for, for all of their friends and supporters in the states to do everything they can to try to help get some positive influence for them. And so, out in the commons area today, we have letters that are pre-written to the United States Embassy in India, to uh, Senator uh, Braun and Senator Young here in Indiana, and what we're asking you to do is just simply go by the table, Uh, and pick up these letters, all you need to do is put your personal information up here at the top on the uh, top left-hand side of the letter and sign it. We'll do everything else. We'll stuff it in the envelopes. We'll uh, We'll put the stamp on it, the international stamp on it, and put it in the mail. You can also pick up these cards. You can scan the QR code to learn a little bit more about what's going on there in India. We are limited in what we can talk about because our services are taped, And uh, we're limited what we can write about on our social media sites just for their safety. But here's the deal bottom line, we need your help. Ajay needs your help. And so please, please don't get distracted when the service is over and just go home. Walk out through the commons area, get your letters, and help by doing your part because I can't, I don't have the time or the ability to tell you how serious this situation is for the safety of the law family and for the future of Central India Christian Mission. We need your help, okay? To that end, let's just bow and pray for just a moment. Father in heaven, we love you and we praise you and we're so grateful to sing praise to you and to worship you in this place today. And Father, we lift up our our dear brother, Dr. Ajay Law, his brother, David, their faithfulness, their families, their missions, their ministries, their passion, the difference they make, the way they're changing the world in India. We pray for their protection and safety. Give us, Father, the the commitment to do uh, just a small part in trying to help them uh, by participating in this letter campaign. Watch over them. Keep them safe. We love you, and we thank you for our partnership with them. We pray all this in Jesus' name, and everyone agreed and said, amen. amen. All right, well, we're, we're in week two of a very special but brief message series called The Life God Calls Us To, uh, and from the beginning, our plan for this message series in the book of Esther is to focus on the characters of the story and the lessons that can be learned from their lives, both good... And bad. And to that end, our executive pastor Aaron Gable kicked off the series last week by sharing some background information for the book and then introducing us to four main characters King Xerxes, Queen Vashti, Esther, and Mordecai with an emphasis on Esther. Uh, the book has an interesting beginning as it shows us the wealth and the extravagance of King Xerxes, but it also shows us the foolishness of King Xerxes, who basically in a drunken stupor uh, during a party one evening sent for Queen Vashti to come with her royal crown on and present, present herself to him and all of his guests, which was nothing more really than a royal frat party, so that they could be amazed at her beauty. And to her credit, Queen Vashti had enough self-respect to say no, but that didn't go well for her in the end because the advisors of King Xerxes feared that Queen Vashti's refusal would would get out to all the rest of the women in the kingdom, and they would start to stand up their husbands, and they couldn't have that, and so Queen Vashti was out, and basically Vashti was vanquished because of her self-respect, and that's when we meet Esther and her cousin Mordecai, because now King Xerxes needs a new queen. And so they put on basically an ancient version of The Bachelor. I think that's what Aaron called it. Some might call it a Miss Meads and Persians pageant. And they rounded up all the most beautiful women in the land uh, to see who gets to be the next queen queen. We'll cut to the chase, and Esther is one of the women presented to King Xerxes, and he chooses her, and she becomes the next queen. She's the queen of Babylon. But here's the thing about Esther. She was a Jewish orphan being brought up or raised by her older cousin, a man named Mordecai. She, along with thousands and thousands of other Jews, had been deported from the land of Judah following the Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem, where they destroyed the city, broke down the walls, and just desolated the land. And along the way, she lost her father and her mother, but she she had this very tender relationship with her cousin, an older cousin, Mordecai, who basically adopted her and became her guardian. And when she becomes a part of the process to see who the next queen will be, this this is the first twist in the story. Her cousin Mordecai tells her to keep her identity as a Jew a secret. And if you remember from last week's message, not only does she keep her identity as a Jew a secret, but along the way, she compromises her Jewish faith by fully participating in every aspect of this search for a new queen. Aaron talked about that last week with an emphasis on the truth that God cares about good endings more than he does bad beginnings. Because ultimately, at the urging of Mordecai, Esther is going to make a courageous decision that's going to save her people. Well, this weekend, we're going to continue the story by talking about <clears throat> Esther's cousin, <clears throat> Mordecai, in a little bit more detail, <clears throat> excuse me, and introducing a new character in the story, a man named Haman. That's how I'm going to pronounce his name. Other people pronounce it differently, but other people have the freedom to be wrong if they want. <clears throat> but before we do that, because we always make the reading of Scripture a part of our service, Uh, I'm gonna ask you, I'm gonna put some verses up on the screen, and I'm gonna ask you if you're able to go ahead and stand with me for the reading of the scripture. Now, this is not from the book of Esther. This is from the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet in the land, and here's the deal. When all of these Jews were taken off in three separate deportations to Babylon, God allowed Jeremiah the privilege of staying in Jerusalem. Now, Jeremiah has for some time been warning the people in Judah that God is gonna discipline them because of their sin and disobedience. He even goes so far as to tell them that they're gonna be conquered by a kingdom from the north, but this is exactly what happened when the Babylonians came in and overthrew them. But God allows them to stay in Jerusalem, and he continues to receive messages from God, and this is one of the messages he received from God that he shared, it was a letter that was sent to the captives in Babylon that was read over and over again, generation after generation after generation. This is the message that came from God through the prophet Jeremiah. We're going to look at Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 13. Follow along as I read. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Did you notice that God said, I carried, I carried. This wasn't an independent work of the Babylonians. God used them, even a pagan nation, to inflict his judgment on the land of Judah. You too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. Now, here's words that probably many of you are familiar with. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask God to bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, here's the reason why I wanted to read that passage from the book of Jeremiah as we're studying the book of Esther. God's people, as we know, are captives in the land of Babylon because of God's judgment against them for their sin and disobedience. But, and this is important for all of us to hear, even in spite of that and the severity of all of that, God had not abandoned them. Somebody say amen to that. He had not abandoned them. So he sent these words to them through the prophet Jeremiah to be passed on from generation to generation because he wanted his people to know, even though they were being punished in the moment, they still had hope for the future. And what that means is that Mordecai and Esther would have heard these words over and over again as they lived in exile. And so... As they went through their daily lives, they would have known in the deepest part of who they were that regardless of what was happening to them at the moment, God was not finished with them. And that brings us to the two characters we're going to talk about today. We're going to call number one, the first character, the gatekeeper, and we're going to be talking about Mordecai. Just say that for you if you're someone who likes to take notes. We're going to talk about the gatekeeper Who is Esther's cousin, Mordecai? But he was more than just a cousin, as we already saw, because after Esther lost her parents, he became like a father to her. And while we may not agree with everything Mordecai does, like telling Queen Esther, or ultimately Queen Esther, not to reveal to King Xerxes or any of his attendants that she is Jewish, and just to go along with the whole process of becoming queen, a queen, even though it compromised her Jewish faith, there's no question that Mordecai loves her. He loves her deeply. And while there are a lot of different things we could say about Mordecai, the one thing that really stands out about his life over and above everything else was the quality of loyalty. He was a man of loyalty. And here's how we see that in the story. Number one, he was loyal to Esther. This is evident by the fact, first of all, that he raised her as his own daughter, but it's also evident by the fact that when she was involved in this process of being selected to be the next queen, Esther chapter 2, verse 11, you can see it on the screen, says this. Every day, Mordecai would take a walk near the courtyard of the harem to find out about Esther and what was happening to her. If you remember from Aaron's message last week, all these women who had the opportunity to become the next queen had to go through this extensive process to get to the end. And so every day while she was involved in that process, Mordecai made sure that he checked up on her. And someone might say, well, of course he did. That's what you do because she was his family. But the truth is not everyone looks after their family like that, do they? And the whole world today is filled with broken people and broken families, and children who have holes in their hearts because they didn't have the emotional support of a father or a mother, and you can go on and on and on. But Mordecai loved Esther deeply. That's unquestionable in the story, and he was loyal to her. Number two, we know he was a man of loyalty because he was, this is going to sound strange, he was loyal to the king. He was loyal to King Xerxes, this pagan king. I've got my Bible open to Exodus chapter 2. And I'm looking at verses 1 through, or excuse me, uh, verses 21 through 23. And this is what it reads. This is what it says. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, that guy and that guy, thug number one and thug number two, two of the king's officers officers who guarded the doorway became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. This is a big deal, right? But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. All this was recorded in the book of, of the annals in the presence of the king. Now, it doesn't read like this in my NIV Bible, but other translations, and maybe one that you're reading today, gives you the sense that Mordecai was some kind of a palace official because they describe him as being on duty at the king's gate, not just sitting there one day but being on duty at the king's gate. That's why we're calling him the gatekeeper. And it's while he's on duty that he hears about this assassination plot for King Xerxes. Now, let's just pause for a moment and think about King Xerxes for a moment because, honestly, he plays a pretty big role in history because of his involvement in leading the, ultimately leading the Persian army against the nation of Greece. But when we see King Xerxes in the book of Esther, he doesn't look like much of a king, he doesn't look like much of a leader. I say that because if you read through the story, he's almost always at a banquet, he's almost always at a party when we read about him in the story, he's almost always drinking, and not just a little, he's drinking usually to excess, and he's almost always seeking the counsel of his advisors like he's someone who can't make a decision on his own. And so he doesn't appear to be much of a leader when we encounter him in the Old Testament book of Esther. But in spite of those things, and in spite of the fact that he was a pagan king, Mordecai doesn't hesitate in reporting the assassination plot to save his life. And notice that he doesn't just report it to whoever who was immediately in charge of him. He goes directly to Queen Esther, which also demonstrates his ongoing loyalty to her because he's giving her an opportunity to alert the king and gain even more favor with him Now, someone might ask the question, why? Why would Mordecai take these steps to save the life of a pagan king, a pagan king who's holding him as captive away from his homeland? Well, I'm gonna go back to that passage of Scripture we read in the beginning, Jeremiah chapter 29. Uh, And if you look back at verses four through seven, then this is the instruction that God gave to the Jewish captives in Babylon while they were there. He said, build houses and settle down Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Note this. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city which I have carried you into. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, I'm going to push the pause button for a second. Hey, I don't want to get too far off from the message today, but I have a book in my library called The Church in Babylon. It was written by a man named Erwin Lutzer, who for many, many years was the pastor at Moody Church in the Chicago area. He is a tremendous preacher. Maybe you're familiar with him because he's on Moody Radio Monday through Friday every morning at 930. He is one of my favorite preachers to listen to in all the world. And he wrote this book called The Church in Babylon that basically says living in the United States of America today is very much like what was like for the Jews living as slaves in Babylon so many years ago, in the sense that just like in Babylon then, in the United States of America today, the truth is there is very little regard for God. And if that's something that you don't know or recognize or understand, then you've been living with your head buried in the sand. There is very little regard for God or the things of God In our country today, in fact, the United States of America in many ways has become, to many people, almost unrecognizable. Say amen if you know what I'm talking about. And in the book, Lutzer, using that passage that we read from Jeremiah chapter 29 just a few minutes ago, talks about three different ways that you could choose to live as a, 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 a Jewish captive in the land of Babylon years ago. You could live in isolation. You could live in assimilation, or in other words, you could just become, you could become just like your, your uh, people who had held you captive, had taken you captive. You could become so much like the people around you that there's no discernible difference between your life and theirs. Or the third thing is you could live like this, infiltration without contamination. You could become a part of where you were. But not allow where you were to change your life, to contaminate your life. Now, some of the Jews who were in Babylon just isolated themselves, and they had no impact on the culture around them. Some of the Jews became just exactly like the Babylonians, just as pagan as they were. They had no impact on the culture around them, but what God wanted was for the for the Jewish captives there to become a part of the culture that they were in without being changed by the culture. That's why he said, you know, all the things that he did, he said, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. Uh, Don't decrease in number, but increase and on and on and on. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city because if the city prospers, you prosper as well. He wanted them to be a part of the culture, but he doesn't want the culture to be a part of them. He wanted them to be different. And friends, listen to me. That's the same thing God wants for us as we live in our world and our culture today. Amen. The exact same thing. And so, the prophet Jeremiah shared that message with them. And we don't have time to talk about it in detail or even with regard to Esther's choices up to this point But when Mordecai alerted King Xerxes of this assassination plot, it was the right thing to do because he was seeking the peace and the prosperity of the city. He was trying to do exactly what God had called him to do. Even if he despised King Xerxes, he was doing the right thing because not only did it save the life of the king, which benefited the nation, but ultimately, as we'll see in the rest of the story, it allowed the queen to gain influence with the king, Influence that would become critical later in the story. Now, at this point, there's a third level of loyalty that we see in Mordecai, and that was loyalty to his people. And this point helps us to identify the next character that we talk about in the story of Esther, and that's this man named Haman. Now, here's the thing with Haman. For whatever reason, King Xerxes loved Haman, And because he loved Haman, he promoted him to a position where he is the most powerful official in the empire apart from the king, which was perfect for Haman because he was a very ambitious man, very, very ambitious for all the wrong reasons. And here's how Mordecai's life intersects with the life of Haman. Because Haman is so powerful, all the other officials are supposed to bow down to him as a sign of respect whenever he passes by. We read about that in Esther chapter 3 verses one and two that says, after these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of that guy, that guy, of elevating him. I just don't have it in me to read those names this morning. I'm sorry. Elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman for the king had commanded this concerning him. But here's the problem. and Here's where his life uh, intersects with Mordecai. The last part of verse two says, but Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. He wouldn't do it. Everybody else in the kingdom did, except this Jewish captive named Mordecai. And what's interesting is the Book of Esther doesn't really give us a clear explanation as to why Mordecai refused to do this why he chooses not to bow down. But I think we can kind of connect some dots behind the scenes and figure it out. The answer probably lies in the fact that Haman is an outsider in Babylon, just like Mordecai is an outsider. Remember, Mordecai is an outsider because he's a Jewish captive. Haman is an outsider because he is an Amalekite, an Amalekite. And here's the deal. There is a feud that's been going on between the Jewish people and the Amalekites for about a 1,000 years. Now, I'm gonna already be out of time here in just a few minutes before I'm done, so I don't have time to go into detail and telling you the background of that feud. So go home today, open up your Bibles, and find out on your own why. Instead of watching a football game for four hours, only to be disappointed in the end because the team you didn't like the team you didn't like one, or turn turning on Lifetime Movie Network and watch Newly Wed and Dead or Deadly Daycare or Deranged Granny, any of the other provocative titles for their movies. Open up your Bible, do something productive, and find out why there's this feud between the Amalekites and the Jews. But the bottom line is, Mordecai knows who Haman is. He knows that he is an outsider just like himself, and he knows he is an Amalekite. He knows who his people are, and because of that, His loyalty to his people comes out, and he refuses to bow down to Haman whenever Haman comes by, and this makes Haman furious, absolutely furious. And it doesn't take long for him to find out who Mordecai is, specifically that he is a Jew. Look at these words on the screen from Esther chapter 3, verses 3 through 4. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated. Note this, for he had had told them he was a Jew. Now, here's the deal, friends. It's clear Mordecai's desire for Esther was to be safe. And so as a result of that, he instructed her to compromise her faith in this contest to see who would be the next queen by hiding her heritage. But now, but now Mordecai finds himself in a situation with Haman where he cannot bring himself to compromise. Not any longer because he will not bow down to Haman. And so loyalty, loyalty to Esther, loyalty to the king, even though he was a pagan king, and loyalty to his people is a huge part of who Mordecai is. We need to understand that about him. It's who he is on the deepest level, even though he's made some mistakes along the way. All right, here's the second one. Let's talk about the official, and of course, I'm talking about Haman. Let's talk about him for a moment. Just like we use the word loyalty to describe Mordecai, there's one word we could use to describe Haman, and that's the word pride, because he was a very prideful man. And he basically demonstrates the same level of loyalty in his life that Mordecai demonstrates in his. The difference is Haman's loyalty is exclusively to himself because that's what pride does. Pride blinds you to anything else but yourself And the Bible is really clear about how God feels about pride. In fact, let's look at some verses from uh, the scriptures. Psalm 138 and verse 6 says, Though the Lord is on high, he looks upon the lowly, but the proud, the proud he knows from afar. That's how God feels about pride. How about uh, Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 34? He mocks the proud, mockers, but gives grace to the humble. God mocks proud mockers, but gives grace to the humble. How about the next one? Proverbs 29, a man's pride brings him low, but a man of lowly spirit gains honor. Gains honor with who? With God. How about the next one? Matthew 23, 12, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. How about the next one? James chapter 4 and verse 6. I want you to read this with me. Let me hear your voices. But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes, everyone say opposes, opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I think you get the picture. When our lives are filled with pride, the only thing we care about is ourselves, and that's what we see in Haman. Let me give you a couple of examples. First of all, one we've already talked about, when Mordecai refuses to bow. I already gave you the summary of that uh, from uh, Esther chapter 3. Even though King Xerxes had issued this command that... All the royal officials were to bow down to Mordecai, or to Haman. Mordecai refused to do that. Now, if you go a little bit further in Esther chapter three, this time verses five and six, we see the result of that in Haman's life. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of only killing Mordecai. He's already decided, I'm going to get even with this guy. I'm going to kill him. But having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Don't miss that last part. His pride was so overwhelming to him because of this slight, this dishonor that he had gotten at the hands of Mordecai that he decided, I'm not just going to punish Mordecai. I'm going to make sure that all the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes are gone, that they're completely exterminated. From the very first time, friends that Mordecai refused to bow down to him, Haman became consumed with how he could get even, how he could punish him for the disrespect, and any perspective he may have had about serving the king, any perspective he may have had about serving the country, any perspective he might have had about uh, any noble pursuit he could have been involved in was gone, all he could think about was the disrespect that he had received from Mordecai because his entire life, because of his pride, was focused on himself and no one else, nothing else. And the result is his pride put the entire population of the Jews in Babylon in great danger. That's what pride does. It causes us to be consumed with ourselves and with our own satisfaction without any regret or concern for anyone around us. There is no cost too great when it comes to satisfaction, the satisfaction of our own pride. Now, here's another reason uh, we, we know that Mordecai was... Um, was just, or excuse me, um, Haman was filled with pride. We see it because what Mordecai did, his refusal to bow overshadowed every other thing in Haman's life. We go down a little bit deeper in the story, and now we get in Esther chapter five. And because we're focusing on the characters of Esther, I know that we're kind of jumping around the story, but here's the deal. If you come back next week, I promise all the dots will be connected and everything will make sense, but we're focusing on the characters. So you jump ahead to Esther chapter five, verses nine through thirteen, and this is what you read: Haman went out happy that day. So some some things happen now. Now, uh, if I give you a little behind the scene look, uh, Mordecai uh, knows about this plot to kill all the Jews. He shared this plot with Esther. She knows about what's gonna happen. And together there is a plan that's being put in place to try to keep this from happening. And Haman, because all he cares about himself is too stupid to realize what's happening around him. And so he's he's basically being duped by Queen Esther to think that everything is great when everything is not great for him. And so this one says, Haman went out that day Happy and in high spirits, but when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife. Haman boasted them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above all other nobles and officials. He was talking about all the great things that were going on in his life. And that's not all Haman added. I am the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. Okay, and this is where everything is going to go south for Haman. He says all of these things, but then he adds these words. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. He was obsessed with Mordecai because of his pride. You ever been there? You ever been there where something, you're obsessed with something or someone, you just could not get them out of your thoughts, and every time you thought about them, About it, or every time you saw them, you just took you into a dark place. That's exactly where Haman is living right now. He was so filled with pride that all the accomplishments of his life, all the acquisitions of his life, all the honor of his life doesn't mean a thing to him simply because this one man won't pay him the respect that he thinks he deserves. And this overwhelming and consuming pride that's at the heart of all of this ultimately leads not just to his downfall, friends, but it leads to his death when through the loyalty of Mordecai and the courage of Esther and ultimately, above everything else, the providence of God, he's going to be executed in the exact same way he planned to execute Mordecai. All because of the foolishness of pride. No good things come From pride. And there's a reason why the Bible talks so much and so strongly about the danger of pride. So what can we learn from these two characters in the book of Esther? Let's talk about first a lesson that we can learn from Mordecai. And I want to say from the beginning that it's less than perfect. This is a less than perfect lesson because Mordecai was less than perfect. But here you go. It's possible to live a life of faith and integrity in the midst of darkness. It's possible. These Jewish captives in Babylon were surrounded by idolatry, they were surrounded by indulgence, and they were surrounded by perversion that was so deep that it's almost difficult to describe with words. And let me remind you of something I said earlier related to that book by Erwin Lutzer called The Church in Babylon. They had three options on how they could respond while they were living in the land of Babylon. They could respond to isolation, just remove themselves from everything that, they, that was possible. Assimilation, they could just become like the Babylonians to where there was no discernible difference between them and their captives, or their captors rather, even though they were people of great faith in the one true God. Or could they live, they could live with infiltration in the culture without contamination? Those are the three options. And if you go back to that passage from Jeremiah 29, it's clear that God wanted them to choose the third. He wanted them to choose infiltration without contamination. That's why he said, build houses and settle down. That's why he said, plant gardens, marry, have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city. He asked them to do all of those things. But, all the while maintaining their spiritual integrity. And while it didn't look like it from the beginning, ultimately, that's what we see from Mordecai. And while it didn't look like it in the beginning from, for Esther, ultimately, that's what we see in her. We have got to follow the example that God wanted for the Jews in Babylon. We have got to learn the lessons from this story when it comes to the way we live in the world and the culture that surrounds us today. We have got to. I see a lot of Christians living in isolation. You know, they just, they go to great lengths to separate themselves from any influence in the culture at all. And there's a part of me that understands that, friends, but there's also a part of me that understands that we are always called to be witnesses to people around us. And you can't do that if you isolate yourself from people. I see a lot of Christians today who honestly have just assimilated into the culture, and there's really no discernible difference between them and the people around them who don't even claim to have a faith in God. You know I see your Facebook pages, right? You might think twice about what you post sometimes. What God wants is infiltration without contamination. That's his will for all of us. I got to say one thing. I'm compelled to say this before I go on. I'm going to go back to that Jeremiah 29 passage and talk about that verse there that we're all so familiar with, Jeremiah 29, 11, where the prophet Jeremiah says, for God, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. That's a very popular verse, but honestly, friends, I'm going to tell you something. It gets misused over and over again, and here's the reason why I say that. Because we have to understand everything that we read in the Bible in the context of in which it's written. And in the context of Jeremiah 29, what those words are saying to us, what this verse is saying to God's people at the time, in the overall context, is that you are in a position now where you're experiencing my discipline because of your sin and your disobedience. But even in the midst of that discipline, I want you to know that I haven't given up on you. Isn't this the good thing about God? He disciplines us because he what? He loves us. And even when we're experiencing his discipline, when we're we're in a season of experiencing his discipline, we can still know at the the depth of our heart that he has not given up on us and he still has a plan for us. There's still a hope in the future for us. That is the context for Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. Now, I've told you this over and over again for years. The Bible teaches us in precept and principle. What's a precept? It's a thus saith the Lord, right? It's something we read in the Bible. There's no mistaking what it means. This is what it means. But there's also the teaching that we receive in the Bible that comes comes in the form of precept, principles, truisms, things that we have to interpret in the, in the lens of what we're going through in our life. So we look at Jeremiah 29 and 11. Is there a principle there? Yes, there is a principle there, but it's not a principle that anyone can apply to their life through some, some shallow or superficial perspective. Don't say it's your life verse unless you plan on going through your life under the discipline of God. I don't know anybody who wants to do that. I mean, this is a tremendous verse. It's one that we should commit to memory. It's one that we should hang on to and love because it reminds us that even when we mess up and even when we experience the discipline of God, which is a reflection of the love of God, he is not giving up on us. Somebody say amen to that. He never, God never gives up on us, ever. Aren't we glad? Because we mess up all the time. And that's the message of that verse. And I just feel compelled to make that clear. Here's the second lesson, and we'll close with this. I'm a little over time, sorry. Don't let pride destroy your life. This is a lesson from Haman. He had a lot of things in his life that put him in opposition to God, but the one glaring thing that leaps off the pages of the book of Esther is his pride one of the verses we read just a moment ago was James chapter 4 and verse 6. We read it together. It says, but he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Think about the significance of those words. God opposes the proud. In this book that is filled with cover, from cover to cover with messages about how God loves us, about how God forgives us, about how God extends his grace to us, about how God never forsakes us, about how God cares for us. There's this one verse that says, but in this situation, God opposes opposes, opposes the proud. Because God knows the danger of pride. He knows that pride can destroy your life and take away any hope that you have for the future. That's why Psalm 104, or excuse me, Psalm 10 and verse four says, in his pride, the wicked does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. That's the danger of pride. You're so consumed with yourself that there's no room in your life for God. God. And so every one of us need to build spiritual safeguards into our lives to help us avoid the sin of pride because we can all have blind spots when it comes to pride. We need to make sure, number one, that we learn from our mistakes. How well do you do that? How well do I do that? Sometimes I don't do that very well. How well do you do that? Learn from your mistakes. Number two, we need to actively pursue godly counsel. We need to make sure that there are people who can speak into our lives truth when we need to hear truth, even when it's hard to hear. Do you have somebody who loves you enough to do that? Do you give anybody permission to do that? And number three, we need to pray daily with a humble heart, a humble heart, a humble heart. I'm always moved whenever I read Psalm 51, which is a Psalm David wrote that, kind of chronicles the reality of what was going on in his life after his adulterous affair with Bathsheba and after he tried to cover it up and all the, the bad consequences that came from that. When he writes about that in Psalm 51, one through, verses one through four, he says this, have mercy on me, O God. This is, a hum- this is praying from a humble heart. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. Listen to this. And my sin is always before me. When we pray, the confession of our sin needs to be a part of our prayer to remind us of how desperately we need this holy God who has chosen to love us. I want you to pray with me. Thank you, Lord, for our time together today. A little bit of a different message. Um, I pray that your spirit, who is the, the, the divine truth teacher, will apply it to our hearts. Give us, the, give us the wisdom to learn from the story of Esther, from Mordecai and from Haman and from all the other characters that are there. Remind us of how you are always at work in our lives with our best interest in uh, the depth of your heart, even when we are being punished because of our sin and disobedience, help us, Father, to live every day of our life with a humble acknowledgement of how much we need you, how desperately we need you, moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day. In Jesus' name I pray.